Everyone, this is Dr. Michael Walden. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. Today's show topic will center on the more common and essential questions and answers that you need to know for your health and well-being. And I have as my guest and co-moderator today, Mr. Jim Wilde. He'll be asking me these questions, and in fact, he wrote every single one of them. He's got about six pages of questions here today. We won't get through them all, but I'll get through as many as possible. Jim, why don't you say hi to everyone? Oh, thank you, Dr. Walden. Hello, everybody. Okay, great. So uh, before we start, though, I just want to remind everyone that if you have show topics or questions or comments on my uh, responses today, you can post those comments and questions on my blog at www.integratednutritionny.com or blooddetective.com. The blogs are identical. And please email me for questions or concerns at info at blooddetective.com. You can also call me at 914 552 one four four two. So what we're going to do right now is Jim's going to ask me one question at a time, and then I'm going to respond to it. And because I want to get as, as much information as possible, I might cut some of these questions off. I might even tell Jim, you know, go to the next one. We'll just play it by ear. And if there's something that you want to hear or feel that I did not fully speak on, again, just email me or call me. So Jim, what's the first question today? Well, the first two have to do with vitamin A. So what goes into determining if supplementation of vitamin A is required? Okay, that's a really important question. So for those of you who don't know, vitamin A is considered one of the fat-soluble nutrients. Basically, vitamin A, D, E, and K, coenzyme Q10, beta-carotene, omega-3, and omega-6 oils, those are all in the fat-soluble family. So um, vitamin A had gotten a bad rap for a lot of years, Jim, as you know, because uh, sometime in the 50s, people were taking cod liver oil, which was naturally loaded with both vitamin A and D, and without knowing anything about the chemistry or adverse health effects of these uh, potentially toxic nutrients, people would take tons and tons of cod liver oil and many people would get liver failure or hepatitis, which interfere with liver function. Hepatitis is a fancy term for inflammation of the liver. So you can have a vitamin-induced hepatitis from a fat-soluble vitamin like vitamin A or D, or you can have a viral hepatitis, as everyone here knows, like uh, hepatitis C or A or B. And there's drug-induced in hepatitis, but we're talking about vitamin A. So vitamin A, uh, before we knew what the issue was, caused some very serious problems. So for years, doctors did not recommend that people take supplemented vitamin A or D, but now we know better. We know that we can take and should, in fact, take vitamin A and other fat-soluble vitamins. So when it comes to vitamin A, the basic amount probably would be about 25,000 IUs at the lower end of the scale. And depending on your health problem, maybe it's eczema, you might need a bit more, 10, 15, 20,000. But regardless of the amount, it's important that when you take any fat-soluble vitamin, you're monitored by a qualified healthcare provider who either can draw laboratory work themselves or at least can get copies of laboratory work that you've had that look at your liver enzymes. So there's different liver enzymes, and if there is hepatitis caused by vitamin A, Jim, you'll see that one or more of the liver enzymes will increase. This is usually a reversible process. You identify it. You have the person stop taking the vitamin A, and the liver comes back to normal in terms of enzyme levels. But vitamin A is essential for immune function. It has anti-inflammatory effects, and its most fundamental effect probably is that of, of repair, tissue repair. It's needed for the skin cells or the cells that line any organs. Uh, again, we can go on all day long about vitamin A, but we'll leave it right there. The amount in mo most multivitamins is basic for people. Sometimes you need more. Let's go on to question number two. Okay, well, I have the same question regarding calcium. Knowing the body's own regulatory processes and the consequences of too little or too much calcium in the body. 
Oh, perfect. Uh, so you know that calcium is one of my favorite things to talk about, which is why I did an entire show on calcium, Jim, just a little bit. And just to remind you folks listening, if you go to my blog, you just scroll from the top down and you can see the titles of the shows. You just click on them and they start to play. So the long and short of it of, with cal- of calcium is this, is that in the United States, we consume too much calcium. It's everywhere. It's in toothpaste. It's in orange juice. It's everywhere. And we know now that the way we thought about calcium is quite the opposite of what is true. We realize that we're supplementing too much of it. The more calcium you take in, usually the more calcium you excrete. So some studies have shown that people with the highest calcium intakes have the softest bones. You heard it right, the softest bones. And then when the body is not using calcium well, maybe due to a blood pH that's too low, maybe due to a blood pH that's too high, maybe due to vitamin D deficiency or vitamin D insufficiency, meaning your levels are normal but not optimal, the body doesn't keep calcium in its major storage site, which is the bone. So the body says, hey, where do I put this calcium? It sticks it on arteries, creating hardening of the arteries. It could deposit in breast tissues, uh, creating uh, calcium-laden breast cysts, which is a precursor to uh, breast cancer potentially. And of course, kidney stones, as the body tries to filter the the calcium out of the body, it has to go through the kidneys. Um, And we need calcium for not just bone health, but we need it for blood clotting and neurologic function. So when the body does not use calcium properly, it can store also in muscles causing fibromyalgia type symptoms. It can distort uh, uh, a a variety of of brain functions, including just memory, uh, recall, general mood, and sense of well-being. Did I answer your question, Jim? Oh, absolutely, and then some. Well, I have the same question about determining mm-hmm. when uh, and when not to do iron supplementation. Okay. Understanding that iron uh, deficiency comes from a whole assortment of uh, different causes, including excessive blood loss. Right. Um, and that too much iron can create some serious problems. Okay, great. Another really important question because iron anemia is the most common anemia uh, in the world uh, on planet Earth. And as you mentioned, anemia can be caused or deficiency, that's what anemia means, from uh, menstruation in women and also uh, hemorrhoidal blood loss, either external hemorrhoids or internal hemorrhoids. There could be other deeper internal bleeding from, let's say, ulcers that can cause anemia. Uh, Then there's, of course, the diet. If one doesn't have an intake matching the outtake, then anemia can result. And the reason why iron is so important is its its fundamental function is that of um, hemoglobin production. You know, and hemoglobin is a protein inside a red blood cell that's needed to bind to oxygen. And as everyone here knows, if you cannot bind to oxygen well, if your, your red blood cells cannot bind to oxygen, your entire circulation that delivers that oxygen to tissues could suffer. So number one, who should take iron? Um, Anyone who is iron deficient. So that would be a person on a blood test whose, uh, first of all, the cause of their iron anemia is discovered. Here's what I mean. If a person is found to be iron deficient, their blood work might show a low hemoglobin, their total iron might be low, their hematocrit might be low, and then something called ferritin, which is a storage form of iron, could be low. Now, if we see that on a blood test, and let's say it's a man, men don't menstruate, Jim, right? So we wonder why that man might be anemic. Now, if that person is a vegetarian or a vegan, that might explain it, because that's a very common deficiency in vegetarian and veganism. But cancer needs to be suspected in a man who's anemic. And of course, it could be hemorrhoidal loss of blood. So we simply do not want to take iron if we're low until we know the cause 100%. Because then, folks, you could be masking uh, a more serious cause of the anemia by taking iron. So who should take iron? People who need it. How do you determine that? By careful conversation and testing, looking at the labs, doing different tests, making sure the right person is getting the right form of iron. And then the amount, of course, depends on uh, a number of factors, including you know, how deficient someone is. So that's really the, the, the basics there. If you take too much iron, you can increase your risk of various cancers and heart disease, Jim. And of course, too little iron can affect every single system in the body, including the cardiovascular system. Chronic anemia increases heart attack risk because the heart has to pump harder inefficient blood or anemic blood. So we could do a whole show on it, but I hope you, that, that's, that's some good stuff, I think. Great, thank you. Uh, what health problems caused by insufficient production and release of bile 
have you dealt with in your practice? And what treatments, foods, supplements, herbal remedies have been most effective for each? Okay, so, Jim, a good question, too, a real complicated one, but let's try to bring it down to the basics. Um, bile insufficiency is um, not an uncommon thing. Uh, it's also not something that can be tested in any reliable way. It's more something that is figured out based on doing a careful health and nutrition history with a person. For example, a person with bile insufficiency might have adverse gastrointestinal symptoms when they eat foods that have, have fats because the bile, which is made by the liver, everyone, so bile is made by the liver, on the back of the liver is the gallbladder. It's basically a muscular sac. And the liver deposits and produces bile, puts it in the gallbladder. Then the gallbladder has a tube that goes into the small intestine. It's called a common bile duct. And there's neurohormonal signals happening when a person eats, let's say, a fatty food. It goes in the intestine, and these neurohormonal signals happen, which trigger the liver and the gallbladder to secrete or pump bile in the small intestine. If that doesn't happen when someone eats their fatty foods like avocados or their raw nuts and seeds, which have natural fats, or even omega-3 fat supplements, for example, <clears throat> what'll happen is they'll have gastrointestinal symptoms. They'll generally complain of gas, bloating, or very malodorous um, gas, actually. So when a person says to me, I can't take omega-3 fats or I can't eat avocados because this happens, I think to myself, huh, they may have a bile acid insufficiency. So you can supplement someone with actual bile acids that are available, and they can be used pretty safely. And also other digestive enzymes, uh, because if the body's been deficient, gem or insufficient in bile production for long enough, then the pancreas tries to take over for some of the digestive function that the bile doesn't do to, in terms of fats by making more lipase. So what I'm trying to say here is that we may want to supplement the person with bile acids and also other digestive enzymes like lipase, amylase, and protease. Okay, so that, that's pretty much that. Also, a person might just have a very tender abdomen, and again, they'll, they'll know it. They'll have, they'll have gastrointestinal symptoms, Jim. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What's your basic approach with a patient who has mitochondrial dysfunction, and how do you go about determining the underlying cause? I told you, folks, that the Jim is uh, no joke. Uh, he asks all the hard questions. So first of all, many of you might remember back in eighth grade, the science teacher teaching you all about the mitochondria, because I, re I remember that. I remember learning it in eighth grade. I was fascinated with it. And then I remember learning it in ninth grade. I was fascinated with it. And then in college, even in graduate school, I thought to myself, this mitochondria thing must be really important. The long and short of it is the mitochondria is an organelle, like an organ in the body, but a tinier one, an organelle that's in uh, most cells of the body. And it's responsible for producing the energy of the cell. Without mitochondria, we're dead. The more mitochondria a tissue has, the healthier it tends to be. So mitochondrial dysfunction or loss of the, either the number of mitochondria or the function of mitochondria is associated with aging and disease across the board. It's that fundamental. So your question is, what can we do to, to improve mitochondrial function? Is that essentially the yeah, question? Uh, right. Okay. One of the things that can be done is, of course, eating right. Uh, and that means eating lower down on the food chain. And, and this is my opinion, but it's also based on medical nutrition literature that show that healthier individuals, when they do biopsies of tissues, they will find more mitochondria and less swollen mitochondria. You don't want them swollen. When a person eats higher amounts of fruits and vegetables, I even remember reading, Jim, a study um, on a certain type of bone cancer where they had these individuals drink just fresh green leafy juices and the number of mitochondria increased and their quality of life increased. So what else can we do? Of course, we want to eliminate the refined and processed sugars and the white flours and the gluten and GMOs. Any stressor on the body, allergies that an individual person might have can stress the mitochondria. Mitochondria can be inf affected and are affected by infections, 
toxins, heavy metal toxins, toxins made in the body, uh, dysbiosis, which is a term referring to um, ill health of the intestinal tract and all these inflammatory mediators. Think of it this way, folks. The mitochondria kind of has to manage all of these things we're exposed to, whether it's toxins, medications, um, and the normal aging process, hormonal changes, everything that happens to you and anything bad you've ever felt in any disease or illness you've ever had has always adversely affected mitochondria. So how you improve mitochondrial function is by taking generally healthy steps that we're talking about today, all of which either directly or indirectly have been shown to improve mitochondrial function. So I hope that that's a reasonable answer. It's a loaded question. <laughs> so how do you fix mitochondria? If you are vitamin C deficient, well, you better take that vitamin C and that'll help fix the mitochondria. The mitochondria has a fatty membrane. So if it's not working well in your body and you have headaches or you have fibromyalgia or you have cancer or any health problem at all, your mitochondria is down-regulated, you'll need to take omega-3 fats. If you're low in vitamin D, that lowers the energetics of the mitochondria. Then you need that. So you want to fix whatever it is you, you need. That's what you do to help your mitochondrial function. But in the antioxidant family of nutrients is probably the best response that I can give you. I tend to prefer uh, green leafy juices, uh, fruit juices, and also superfood concentrates like my Detox 1234 powdered products or similar products because they hit on a number of nutritional factors that can help the mitochondria stay healthy and produce the energy to get healing done in the form of ATP. That's the energy molecule of the cells. Wonderful. What do you find are the main causes of low nitric oxide synthesis creation in the body? And what are examples of unwanted outcomes from this? Okay, again, another great question. Basically, Jim is asking, you know, what is nitric oxide? Why is it important? And uh, what happens when it doesn't work well? And how can we maybe increase it? So nitric oxide is a, a gaseous um, a product that is produced in the body by the lining of blood vessels. So the blood vessels produce nitric oxide. And when uh, and nitric oxide is needed for blood vessels to dilate. So if someone is low in nitric oxide, then they might have a cardiovascular problem. They might have uh, constricted blood vessels in the heart or anywhere else. And they also may have hypertension. That's a very common manifestation of low nitric oxide. Um, low nitric oxide is associated with a number of serious health problems. For example, if any of you were to just Google nitric oxide in breast cancer, you'd find out that it's low in breast cancer. When you shut off proper blood supply and you lower oxygen delivery to cells, you tend to cause problems. So as you can imagine, a lot of health problems are associated with low nitric oxide. One of the quickest and easiest ways to increase one's nitric oxide level, and there are tests for that, I do a blood test for nitric oxide, is to eat more arginine, which is an amino acid, or proteins in general, but it's the arginine, which is the amino acid that's mostly responsible for what they call inducing or producing nitric oxide in the body and in the blood vessels. If blood vessels can dilate, blood pressure goes down. If blood vessels dilate with proper nitric oxide, circulation is better. Toxins can be removed better from cells. Nutrients can be delivered better to the cells. So that's what nitric oxide is for, and low levels are associated with an increased risk of overall morbidity and mortality, meaning dying of anything occurs at a much higher rate when someone's low in nitric oxide. And Jim, what's so sad is, it's not a regular test done by practitioners. It's one of those sorts of things you have to find a special holistic uh, practitioner to do that test. Great, thank you. Uh, choline, it's a mineral. Uh, its various forms seem to be under-discussed, yet critical to several physiological functions, including methylation, uh, neurotransmission. Can you elaborate a bit on your clinical experience with choline deficiencies? Yeah, a couple things about choline, which is in the amino acid family. Choline can be linked up with other nutrients like uh, phosphatidylcholine, and that form of choline is in the cell membranes of the body, so it's needed for cell membrane stability, particularly in the brain. And with the 
ridiculously high incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's dementia, minimal brain dysfunction, Parkinson's disease. There isn't a neurologic condition I can think of that's not associated with some imbalance of phosphatidylcholine in the membranes. So choline can be supplemented. Uh, you can purchase choline and you can take it. Um, and the amounts generally for most average individuals, and of course no one's average, but are usually between 200 and 500, but even as much as 1,000 milligrams of choline might be necessary. Uh, choline's needed for proper um, motor function in the body. That means movement. So it'll be low in Parkinson's patients. So choline-rich diets can help uh, the Parkinson's patients. Um, what else can I say about choline? Uh, choline uh, is... Uh, part of the neurotransmitter process in the brain. Neurotransmitters are those chemicals that help get um, thoughts, feelings, and emotions from one neuron to the, the other. And probably the, the final thought on choline for now is choline is uh, essential for uh, liver uh, regeneration, liver cells. So the liver has over 500 functions that we know of since last count. And choline is a very reliable, safe way to maintain liver cells. So that, that's pretty much it for calling for now, Jim. Wonderful, thank you. What role do amino acids play in pH regulation? Okay, th that's a great question. So the question is, what role do amino acids play in pH? So pH uh, it stands for per hydrogen, and pH balance is what is, uh, is an essential process in the body. pH is either acid, or it's alkaline or something in between. So let's, let's talk about this question in terms of the blood pH. So the blood pH should be between 7.35 and 7.45. Let's call it 7.4 because that's the average. So blood pH is determined by a variety of factors. Diet affects blood pH and the dietary constituents. So does respiration and various disease affect, affect uh, blood pH. Um, the question was, though, how do amino acids affect blood pH? Here's how they might. So amino acids are linked together and they form proteins. So the question really is, how do proteins affect pH? So proteins tend to add acidity potential to the body. I say potentially because just because you eat a protein doesn't mean, like, like let's say a steak or, or a piece of chicken or fish, that doesn't mean it's going to add acidity to you. It has that potential, though, because when proteins are digested, they form an acid ash. So that could let, lend to acidity in the body, but the body controls pH so well that when it detects, let's say you eat a protein food, which is, of course, high in amino acids, and these things start to break down and they enter the bloodstream, the bloodstream tends to become more acidic as you add the proteins, but immediately a bunch of regulating systems of the body release an alkaline product called bicarbonate to balance it out. So this is very key, Jim, because just because you eat an acid food like proteins, which are made of amino acids, doesn't mean you become acid. That would, you'd have that potential if the body was ill and the regulatory mechanisms for controlling pH when you consume amino acid-rich foods like proteins would be there, but it doesn't guarantee it's going to move you there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I, I asked a question before about choline. Uh, my mistake. I called it a mineral. It is a, 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 a protein. Uh, but there's, there's another uh, what's considered an amino acid or protein called taurine. Who, which also I feel is a little uh, under-discussed. Uh, so what are some of the major consequences of taurine deficiency? Or, you know, what are some of the, the aspects of uh, health that taurine contributes to? So regarding taurine, taurine is an amino acid, Jim, as you know. And uh, it, what many people do not know is that it's a potent antioxidant. So a consequence of not having enough taurine in the body would be oxidative stress. So that's one thing. Um, there are two or three other key features of taurine that are important for people to know. One is that taurine helps the body form something called taurocholic acid, 
which is a bile acid. So we, you asked me a question earlier about bile acid secretion. So one way to improve bile acid secretion, which we said earlier, was to take bile acids. But oftentimes a person need to, needs to just take taurine. And then the body has that, that basic product to make the taurocholic acid, which helps us emulsify or break down fats in the small intestine. So one, we have breaking down of fats by producing taurocholic acid. The other importance of taurine, we said, is a general antioxidant. Mm -hmm. And the third one is cardiovascular health. Mm -hmm. So there have been a number of studies that show that um, heart muscle can become weakened in the presence of either taurine deficiency, Jim, or just uh, sometimes taurine insufficiency. The difference between deficiency and insufficiency is that, as deficiency would imply, it's just low and everyone would agree upon it. But insufficiency would mean that on a test, the taurine level could be normal, but the person might actually need far greater amounts than normal for their particular disease or health problem. Let's say like heart failure or recovering from a heart attack. Um, let me just speak quickly about testing for not just taurine, but other amino acids. I usually don't recommend these tests. Um, after years of recommending them, uh, I admit when I'm wrong, uh, it did not really change what I do with people for the most part. Here's what I mean. You can check amino acids in either a urine sample or a blood sample. And um, there's controversy as to which one is better. But if you do either one of those tests, and let's say, Jim, that your test showed that you were deficient in taurine or any other amino acids, what would you then do? You would eat more protein in the diet. So if I suspect protein or amino acid deficiencies with any of my patients, I'm always looking at their diet. And of course, having them focus on vegetarian style proteins, unless they're not a vegetarian, and then we want to choose the cleaner, you know, uh, free range, uh, you know, meats, for example. Mm -hmm. But if someone's deficient, you have, you just, you give them proteins. So the test is three, $400. So if it's, if the person has low amino acids, you would give them proteins. And uh, so the test doesn't change a thing. So it's one of those tests which, again, I think people are wasting their money with. And one other example would be food allergy testing. I am not saying that food allergy testing should never be done. Mm -hmm. But if a person is suspected of having chronic inflammation, food allergy testing will produce false positive results. It'll look like everything's allergic. So what happens? The practitioner says, hey, eliminate everything. And the person feels better. Almost anyone would feel better eliminating everything. Even in medical uh, practitioners know that if someone has a gallbladder problem, you, you take away all their food and they're feeling great in the hospital until they eat something. So again, we always want to make sure that the testing we do changes what we do beyond a guess. Next question, Bill. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the uh, most important biochemical processes in the body adversely affected by excessive alcohol consumption? Okay, so the long and short of it is that alcohol is a toxin. And I remember uh, sitting in my biochemistry class over um, 27 years ago and my biochemistry teacher talking about alcohol as a toxin. And I thought, and I knew a little bit about nutrition back then, and I was like, wow, why doesn't anyone else know that it is a toxin? And then years and years later, I was taking another course at the University of Bridgeport, my master's degree program, and lo and behold, there was my old biochemistry teacher who was saying exactly the same thing. In fact, I don't think she said anything differently. She was on complete remote. But my point, though, is we know that alcohol is a toxin. It's mostly going to affect the liver, but the brain. There's also a bunch of studies in the media right now about the... Uh, the problems that alcohol can have upon the brain, such as killing uh, neurons, which are brain cells, and increasing one's chances of dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's dementia, but also causing uh, atrophy of the brain. That means shrinkage of the brain, which can affect absolutely anything, short-term memory, long-term memory, learning, all kinds of things. Plus, alcohol, uh, by stressing the liver, could have all other types of toxic byproducts forming, like ammonia, which kill brain cells. But um, when the liver gets backed up, and we said earlier that the liver has over 500 functions, we, we realize that alcohol might start a, a row of dominoes by creating all sorts of other secondary and tertiary you know, toxic uh, effects. In the 1950s, Jim, 
they used to have B vitamins in some alcoholic beverages because they knew back then that the alcohol would cause a tremendous loss of the B vitamins in the urine, which would cause neurologic problems. One of the neurologic problems that is very popular and known by most physicians is Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is basically a vitamin B1 deficiency causing confusion and mental deterioration. They bring these people in the hospital, they don't know where they are or who they are, until they give them a drip of vitamins. And then they've cured all that. So it's amazing that physicians will recognize that extreme problem of B vitamin deficiency from alcohol, a toxin in the liver, causing neurological def def defects, mm -hmm. but they won't recognize anything in between that. Like a person who's just not the same, you know, maybe they drank too much alcohol 20 years ago, the effects are being felt now. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting, very interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. How about the next one? Okay. Uh, what do you look for when individualizing a treatment plan to get a patient off blood uh, pressure medication? We talked a little bit, uh, you did, uh, with regard to nitric oxide. Uh, you know, and uh, ideally keep them off these meds. Sure, that's a good question. So hypertension is uh, up there as, as one of the, the top killers of, of people uh, due to stroke. And, and we know that's known as the silent killer. A person can feel fine in the next minute they're having a stroke from hypertension. So the most fundamental thing would be, of course, to clean up the diet, clean up the stress um, and exercise. Uh, in terms of diet, uh, I believe that, again, low down on the food chain, a vegan, vegetarian type of diet, uh, with no added salt whatsoever because salt is uh, reactive in approximately 10% of the population, meaning that about 10% of the population can be sodium sensitive and that can cause hypertension. I'm not saying anyone here should do this at home. This is a disclaimer. Do not do this at home. But if you wanted to know if you were sodium sensitive, you would take your blood pressure and then you would take a, a little um, a tiny amount of, you know, just a little bit of a a swig of, of salt and then take your blood pressure and then see if it goes up. You'd want to just be still in a chair for about 10 minutes, take your blood pressure, and then, then take a, a couple of grains of salt and see what happens. But it's only about 10%. Most people are actually not sodium sensitive, as was once thought. Mm -hmm. And we also, we also know because of years of recommendation for people to eliminate all salt from their diets, because of that, even people who didn't have hypertension, what we have now is a salt-deficient population, which can cause adrenal fatigue. So weak adrenals can be caused by sodium chloride deficiency, which is salt. So um, a, a diet high in animal products might also, in a sensitive person, raise blood pressure, lack of exercise. And so a person would need to begin a proper exercise program. Most people do not have a clue about what a proper exercise program is. You know, Jim, I was in the gym uh, a couple days ago and, you know, I go four or five times a week and I'm always looking at people. And I've been running on the treadmill a bit because the weather hasn't been, you know, conducive for running outside. And uh, there's young people, older people, they come next to me, they're on, on the treadmill, then they're gone after 10 minutes or five minutes or they're talking and they're on their cell phones. And I'm just shocked at how little working out is actually done at the gym. You know, it's like restrooms. No one's actually resting in there. You know what I'm saying? So the gym is a funny place. Uh, so we want to get the right exercise in under supervision. And uh, I think that's pretty much what we can say about it. I will mention this. If someone has hypertension or uh, high blood pressure, you want to be weary of taking licorice. Since this is a show on nutrition, so licorice uh, can cause a uh, what they call a pseudo hyperaldosteronism effect, which will raise blood pressure. Now there is deglycerinated licorice, which is licorice where the glyceritic acid is removed, and that will not affect blood pressure in any way. But if someone, on the other hand, Jim has low blood pressure and they want to increase it because they feel malaise or brain foggy, then taking licorice tincture is an excellent idea. So once again, licorice is no good for hypertension because of the glyceritic acid. So they remove the glyceritic acid, they form deglycerinated licorice, which is also fantastic for esophagitis and gastritis in a chewable form. But I don't want to get too much off the topic. Mm -hmm. How about the next question? Okay. Uh, Gamma-aminobutyric acid, also known as uh, GABA, offers many potential benefits for helping with anxiety, chronic depressive states, 
though too much uh, can create adverse effects. So what testing and clinical work is required to enable a reliable recommendation for GABA? I love, love, love talking about GABA. I really do. Um, it's one of the most safest nutrients or amino acids that can be used. And I say that because it's also a prescription drug, and it's called Neurontin. So Neurontin is used mostly by neurologists and, uh, and certainly psychiatrists um, for um, improving uh, mood uh, as anti-anxiety effects, as you said. But GABA also helps pain. It helps improve sleep and nausea. So GABA is gamma aminobutyric acid. What it is is a uh, neurotransmitter in the brain which helps reduce what's known as sympathetic nervous system activity. Think of sympathetic activity as heightened state of awareness and stressful awareness. And then there's parasympathetic function, which is the calming one. GABA promotes the parasympathetic and the calming uh, function of the nervous system. That's how it reduces anxiety, by lowering the sympathetic part, promoting the, the parasympathetic relaxing part. Now, how is it used? Again, as I mentioned, it's used for pain, mostly what's known as neuropathic pain, like neuropathies, nerve, nerve pain, folks, or any kind of pain. And the way that GABA does that is by increasing serotonin in the body. But GABA, GABA itself is a pain reliever. But it increases serotonin levels, and serotonin is that neurotransmitter in the brain that's also in the gut. In fact, there's more serotonin in the gut than there actually is in the brain. So it'll help pain, it'll promote sleep. So GABA generally is taken before bed. And as far as mood and reducing anxiety, I gotta tell you, Jim, as far as anxiety goes, and folks that you're listening here about this at home, I'm gonna bet that at least, at least two out of five of you have some level of anxiety. And what I notice, Jim, is that when I meet with people and I talk with them and I observe them, it's very easy to see anxiety on people. And when I bring it up to them respectfully, most do not have any clue that they actually have anxiety. So we're gonna do a show all about anxiety, but it is absolutely ubiquitous in society. And anxiety will create and promote all manner of disease. So GABA helps reduce anxiety. Physicians know it and they give GABA. Now there's Neurontin and then there's GABA. Let's talk about GABA. GABA is generally given in a prescription form at 100 milligrams, and someone would start with 100 milligrams before bed. So it increases serotonin, which reduces the uh, anxiety. You also mentioned, Jim, what can GABA be used with that might like make it work better? Well, that would be melatonin and also tryptophan. If those nutrients working with GABA are synergistic, they have a positive additive effect. So if someone has anxiety or depression, and let's say they're taking melatonin, melatonin increases serotonin. Serotonin is an antidepressant. So in medicine, they give the serotonin reuptake inhibitor medications, uh, like let's say Paxil, for example. Now, whether you're taking a medication that increases serotonin, Jim, or whether you are taking melatonin that increases serotonin and you want more of an effect, maybe it's effective but not quite the way you want, you would take GABA with it. Because what GABA does, you won't hear this on every show because you gotta know your chemistry to know this, is GABA increases the sensitivity of the neurons in the brain to serotonin. So it's one thing to take melatonin to increase your serotonin or tryptophan to increase your serotonin. You'll get more serotonin, Jim, for sure. But the receptor sites, the places on the nerves that are supposed to take in that serotonin, they may not be working well. So it's kind of like the serotonin's knocking on the door, but no one's answering. Or maybe they answer sometime. But if you take GABA, the doors open wide. So you get a much better effect. Now, there is some caution here. If a person is taking any medication, like a serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication, any antidepressant, they should not take GABA or L-tryptophan or melatonin without proper supervision because the proton, I'm sorry, the um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors increase serotonin, but so do all the other nutrients I mentioned. 
Together they might make too much serotonin, and that could produce what's called serotonin syndrome, which could actually kill people. So it's a real concern. And I find myself talking with patients who want to get off their antidepressant medication. So it's very important when you're reducing that dose to properly balance out the natural nutrients like GABA, L-tryptophan, and melatonin. Did I answer that question completely? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, I occasionally hear respected healthcare experts say that, quote, uh, we've recently learned that saturated fats are not the problem they've been represented to be, unquote. Yet, with the exception of studies uh, involving coconut oil, I can't find uh, anything in the scientific literature that, that says saturated fats have health benefits. So uh, what are your findings and thoughts on this? Yeah, this is a great question because I remember sitting in a seminar, and it probably was, um, I remember it was in Texas, and it was a good, a solid 10 years ago when this concept of, oh, we got something wrong about saturated fats, and um, I was astounded. Um, at the time, there was some evidence to show that, yep, the tropical oils uh, like palm oil and coconut oil, well, coconut oil seemed to have all these benefits, but it was grouped in with palm oil, which we still believe has adverse uh, health uh, effects. We believe that the saturated fats, other than coconut oil, have bad effects because when you look at populations that have certain disease incidences and you look back and you do these food surveys, they generally consume more of these fats. So it's a very, it's an indirect uh, truth. There are more. There are some more direct studies too that have used individual oils, let's say in animals or humans, and they, they've looked at disease prevalence. And yes, I do agree that the saturated fats, with the exception of coconut oil, uh, are are bad. Saturated fats, by definition, are solid at room temperature. If they're solid at room temperature, they might be solid in your arteries. But then there's the question of coconut oil, which is also a saturated fat. All I can tell you is this. We don't understand everything, but I am I, asked this question a couple of times a week, and every time I'm asked it, I go on to the National Library of Medicine, which is pubmed.com, and I plug in uh, coconut oil and health effects or dangers, and I'm not finding dangers. I'm, I'm just not finding them. I, I really do hope that we're on the right track with coconut oil because, like a lot of you, I am consuming so many different foods that are now coconut oil Latent. Uh, I can tell you too, I just did my blood work recently because I do my blood work every three or four months. And, you know, I'm a 52 year old man. I've got not a single thing in the abnormal column. So I'm consuming a lot of coconut products. I do my big shakes once, usually twice a day, and I use the coconut milk along with everything else I add in my shakes. And, uh, so I can only tell you from a personal experiment, I seem to be okay. And my patients, I think from the best as I can tell, that coconut oil is not harming them. Uh, the research shows it might be good for them, but unless you're following someone for years at a time, it's hard to tell. So I will say I'm 95% confident about coconut oil, but I, I do have some level of reserve because you never know. Okay, thank you. Uh Understanding there are no one-size-fits-all recommendations, what's your general approach with patients who are taking statin drugs? Okay, great. Statin medications. Okay, this one comes up about every five minutes. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the thing about statins is that uh, they do work. When a person takes a statin medication, their lipids, generally, their blood fats will go down. Whether or not you want blood fats to go down is also another story, folks. I just gave an article, a, st a study to uh, a patient, a woman, who was told to take statin medication because of her high lipids. But um, there is research that shows there that unless those lipids are oxidized, they may not need lowering. So not everything that's, that appears to be abnormal really is. But back to the statins. Statins uh, interfere with a certain uh, enzyme in the liver that reduces what's called endogenous cholesterol production, the cholesterol you make in your liver. And for some people, that's a good thing. But studies that I've read that lo have looked at men that are of middle age, for them to get a cardiovascular benefit with statins, they would have to be taking statins for a minimum of five years. And then the statistical advantage after about five years is no greater than taking a vitamin E capsule. So I would say this. If I believe that a person 
really does need their blood fats lowered. Let's just assume that for a moment. And they are not responding to nutrition and exercise and supplements. If they're not responding, then yes. Then in that case, I would have them take statins, but I would also take care to give them certain other fat-soluble vitamins because statins do cause uh, adverse drug interactions. For example, uh, statins will cause um, coenzyme Q10 deficiency, and that's been linked as the cause to the muscle aches and symptoms. What is that called, uh, Jim, again? Uh, I'm having a blank moment here. Is it myositis? Yeah, it's it's a myositis of of sorts. It's where the muscles in the body get either painful or just weak. And and sometimes the weakness, Jim, is not, um, it's not noticeable to the person. They have to get like a muscle test done. It could be very, very subtle. And the reason why it's so dangerous is when CoQ10 is depleted in the muscles, it's also depleted in the muscles of the heart, then you have problems with these muscles. And when you stop the CoQ10, it may not be a reversible thing. So the statins reduce the absorption of the fat-soluble nutrient CoQ10, but also beta-carotene and omega-3s, all nutrients that lower cardiovascular disease. So I give those uh, at different times in the medication on opposite sides of the day if a person comes to me with that. So before we go on to the next question, I just want to welcome everyone to the show. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. My name is Dr. Michael Wald. To post your questions or to contact me, you can give me a call at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. And you can email me at info at blooddetective.com. Okay, what are some of the beneficial functions of cholesterol in the body that, uh, in fact, uh, could be essential to life? That's a great, great question because cholesterol, as everyone knows, has been given a bad reputation. Um, and, and for good reason, because cholesterol is known to be part of the plaques in arteries, for example. But cholesterol is not all bad. In fact, the first surprising thing that I'll let you all know is that cholesterol is an antioxidant. It's an antioxidant, just like vitamin C is an antioxidant. And the reason it is, is because if you look at, if you've ever looked at a molecule drawn in a biochemistry book, cholesterol would have these ring structures. They look like rings and they're more like stop signs, really, that are kind of linked to each other. And that structure is a particular structure, which is cholesterol. But those ring structures capture free radicals. Free radicals are damaging molecules that cause aging and are involved in disease, and cholesterol is an antioxidant. But too much of a good thing can always be a problem, not just with cholesterol. Too much water, for example, can flush minerals from the body, cause uh, abnormal heart rhythm. So everything's got its reverse effect. And and, uh, so back to cholesterol. So cholesterol is needed to form the, um, uh, the sex steroids. So you have cholesterol at the top of the food chain. Think of cholesterol at the top of your head and cholesterol forms a a hormone called uh, pregnenolone and pregnenolone forms progesterone and progesterone forms testosterone and testosterone forms DHEA and testosterone forms all three estrogens, estrone, estradiol, and estriol. So if a person had cholesterol that was too low, they could have problems with lots of different hormones. So people who are, let's say, vegans that don't have proper fat or proper nutrition, which causes the liver to make cholesterol, the liver makes cholesterol, folks. So if you eliminated all cholesterol from your diet, it wouldn't be a bad thing because your body makes cholesterol. It uses that cholesterol as an antioxidant, as I mentioned. But cholesterol is also the major component of most cell membranes in the body. So cell membranes are the outer coverings of, of the cells. And many cells make a tissue, and many tissues make an organ, and many organs make an organ system. So if the fundamental compound of cell membranes is deficient in some way, cholesterol, you'll have a weak cell membrane. And that that can affect and does affect the function of cells. In fact, if any of you have read, and I'm sure none of you have, because it's my 500-page lab book called the Encyclopedia of Anti-Aging Tests, I talk in there, I mention, as you'll find in other laboratory textbooks, that low cholesterol increases cancer risk. I'll say it again, low cholesterol increases cancer risk and high cholesterol increases cardiovascular risk. 
So I'll have people come to see me, Jim, and they'll say, my doctor says your cholesterol's great. It might, it's only 130 or it's 150. That is not great. That is not bad. That's not good at all. There's nothing good about that. Cholesterol less than 160 increases cancer risk overall, and cholesterol above 200 increases cardiovascular risk most of the time. So one, we know that cholesterol is needed for the structure of cells, and if you don't have the proper structure of cells, cells don't work well, that can lead to cancer. If we don't have enough cholesterol made in the body, then we don't form all of those hormones that I mentioned uh, earlier, the progesterone, pregnenolone, testosterone, DHA, and the estrogens. And um, probably another factor I should mention is that low cholesterol in the body will generally mean low cholesterol in the brain. As Jim mentioned to me uh, as we, were, we took a break there for a second, if we don't have enough cholesterol in the body, the brain shrinks. The brain circuits get a bit messed up because cholesterol helps form the neurons. So the thing about cholesterol is, one, we don't need to eat cholesterol. The, the liver will synthesize its own cholesterol as long as we have a healthy diet and that has healthy fats and other liver factors, um, healthy plant-based proteins preferably, um, unrefined processed foods, of course, uh, healthy fats that you'll find, again, in avocados and cold-pressed virgin Italian imported olive oil. You want all those factors in there. And, uh, of course, uh, nuts and seeds that are uh, not roasted because when you roast them, you saturate their fats. Or I should say you increase the amount of saturated fat. There's a certain amount of n natural saturated fat in raw nuts and seeds. So that's basically it with the uh, cholesterol question, I would say. Great. Uh, which lipid ratios do you find to be the most uh, useful markers that you can take from a complete lipid panel? Okay, great. So for those of you who don't know, a lipid panel is a, is a blood fat panel, cholesterol, uh, HDL, which is the happy cholesterol. It doesn't really stand for happy, but you can remember it that way. And then LDL is the bad cholesterol. And then there's HDL and LDL ratios, and there's cholesterol HDL ratio, and of course there's triglycerides, and then there's apolipoproteins and all sorts of different lipids. So the question is, which are the best fats? Jim, the way, the way it should be considered is that if one wants to prevent or deal with cardiovascular disease, you want to look at a number of cardiovascular factors. And I'll give you an example. It's very common for people to see me, and they've said to me, Oh, yes, Dr. Wald, you pointed out to me that my cholesterol HDL ratio is a little high. It's borderline. My doctor said it's borderline, but I shouldn't worry about it because uh, I have a high HDL, which is the happy cholesterol. Well, it is true to say that we want a high cholesterol, uh, HDL because a low HDL is inversely related to cardiovascular risk. But if someone has a high cholesterol number, a total cholesterol is high, and they have a high HDL, what happens is the other, the other test takes cholesterol and mathematically divides the HDL into it, which comes up with a ratio. If your HDL is high and your cholesterol is high, it's conceivable that your total cholesterol HDL ratio could look normal even though your cholesterol is actually high. And your doctors will say, forget the, the high cholesterol because your ratio is fine, is what I'm trying to say here. That doctor would be wrong. It is true to say that a high HDL does help minimize cardiovascular risk, but it does not erase, Jim, the high total cholesterol. In other words, a normal cholesterol-HDL ratio does not erase a high total cholesterol. So we want to see a total cholesterol um, in the 165 to 185 range. That's the optimal range, as opposed to an acceptable range, which is anything from zero to 200 in medicine, ridiculous. You would have me believe, not you, Jim, uh, that a cholesterol uh, number has the same cardiovascular effect potential on someone if it's uh, 100 or if it's 200? No. We do know that most uh, cardiovascular risk occurs when we're above 185. So 165 to 185 is what we want. We also want to look at other lipids, Jim, like the HDL. We want the HDL to be high, certainly higher than a 45, definitely higher than a 65 would be really good. 
And then when it comes to the LDL, which is considered the bad cholesterol, blood tests today will tell you that an LDL of 130 is considered average. And they consider that normal. And they'll write normal or even average on a blood test these days. That's a new thing. But they also stratify, Jim, the LDL. They don't just say that. They say that LDL less than 130 is, is better. And then they say the optimal LDL is 100 or less. So we want to look at these three factors plus the triglycerides. We want triglycerides to be certainly 100 or lower. And triglycerides are the fat, Jim, that are the, uh, is the fat that's most responsive to sugar in the diet. So sugars in the diet will increase triglycerides more than fats will. So to answer your question, we never ever want to rely on any one factor. I like to perform a number of factors uh, in, the, in the chemistry, the least of which is the cholesterol, the LDL, the HDL, the triglycerides, doing all the ratios, and then uh, apolipoprotein A and B and these other types of things. And then there is the LDL where you can measure the particle sizes. So you can have LDL, which is a small particle, and LDL, which is a large particle, and basically, if you think of a blood vessel, a blood vessel is made of cells that form the wall, but they can get kind of leaky. So if you have LDLs on the outside of the wall, that's, there are tiny ones, they can get stuck in the wall, and that causes what's called atherogenic and thrombotic problems, clotting problems. But LDLs that are large molecules cannot fit in there. So when you test these, you always want more LDL large particles as opposed to LDL small particles, even though even the large ones aren't exactly healthy. We also know with HDL, which is supposed to be the happy cholesterol, there's HDL-2 and there's HDL-3. And it seems that HDL-3 might actually be a bad HDL. So we look at these lipid factors. We also want to look at hemoglobin A1C, which is the two-month average of blood sugar when we're dealing with cardiovascular disease, <clears throat> along with C-reactive protein cardio and homocysteine. And I like to measure body composition and arterial stiffness. And all of these together give us a nice, clean picture. And since I think we may be coming to an end, I want to make sure I get a, a, this question in for your listeners, because I think it's something everyone should know about. What's the importance of fiber in the diet? A, a really fundamental question, you know, because fiber's been around as a health-promoting, you know, compound in food, f even in early medicine. You know, they seem to, to have a, had a clue about that. So there's different types of fiber. Um, in the time we have left, I can just briefly mention them, but there's soluble and insoluble fiber. We want a combination of both of those fibers. You'll get a combination of both of those fibers if you eat um, a, a good amount of fruits and vegetables in your diet and also grains if you're into grains and nuts and seeds and those sorts of things. So fiber is the, by definition, the undigestible part of the plant. So that by undigestible, I mean when you eat this stuff, the bacteria in your intestinal tract, they try to break it down, uh, but they don't, they can't. But as they try to break it down, what happens, Jim, is there's certain very favorable health-promoting acids that are formed when bacteria act upon all types of fibers. And those acids are called caprylic and butyric acid, which lower the risk of, uh, of colon cancer and uh, polyp formation. Um, but fiber also, of course, moves things through the intestinal tract. So the average 50-year-old has three to four pounds of undigested fermenting products in their guts. But when you have higher fiber in the diet, you can mechanically move that stuff out much better. Uh, depending on the type of fiber, too, it can help fill you up. And uh, fiber, of course, absorbs different toxins. Does it absorb every toxin? Of course not. But um, fiber also will bind to cholesterol in the colon. Uh, because if you don't bind to cholesterol there, it gets resorbed back into the body, raising blood cholesterol. Now, cholesterol is very similar to estrogen. And when the body wants to get rid of spent, used-up estrogens, they'll be in the colon. If there's high fiber in the diet, that, just like cholesterol, because it's similar molecule, is, is bound and eliminated by the fiber. So fiber, as you can see, has a number of health benefits from lowering cardiovascular risk, from lowering cancer risk, and not just colon cancer risk. And um, by just keeping the bowels moving as, as a material that's undigested, it allows the intestinal muscular layers to exercise themselves. And we have two muscular layers in our colon, and we need them exercised 
some of you out there might get uh, colon cleanses, but they stretch the bowel wall, and they're almost never needed if you get the right fiber, you get the right vitamin C and the right nutrients uh, and bulk in the diet. And one last thought about fiber is uh, ultimately, most individuals, regardless of your age, should be having one good-sized bowel movement each day that's easily moved, that sinks to the bottom of the toilet, doesn't float near the top, which means it has too much fat in it, and that's a condition called serratoria. So, um, and again, uh, a vegan, vegetarian-type diet, making sure you have that bowel movement every day that's not malodorous and uh, moves out quite easily. So, Jim, I want to thank you so much for the questions and for uh, being so uh, thorough in your thinking about them. Thank you. So uh, what we'll be doing, uh, the next show is we're going to have another uh, a young lady in a, a nursing program who's uh, compiled another a list of questions. And if you've liked this format, please give me some feedback by emailing me at info at blooddetective.com. You can check out the website, and this show will be posted uh, in a day or two at www.blooddetective.com or integratednutritionny.com. This is Dr. Michael Wald, host of Ask the Blood Detective, and thank you so much for joining me. See you next time. Too late.